This morning we continue in our sermon series in the book of Matthew, Thrive. And today we have a text of scripture from Matthew, the 21st chapter, beginning with the 33rd verse. I invite you to listen as we hear this parable that Jesus tells towards the end of his ministry. Listen for God's word for you. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, Well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a word of prayer. Gracious and loving God, we have come to hear a word from you. So open our eyes and open our ears that we may receive what you have for us this day. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This past summer, we had our grandson Avery spend the night with Grandma and Grandpa at our place. He's five years old. It was the first time that he spent a night away from his immediate family, and he was a little afraid that he might miss them. So we planned a number of things to do with Avery to take his mind off missing his mom and dad and his brother and sister. Now, his favorite movie is The Wizard of Oz. In fact, last Halloween, the family went trick-or-treating dressed as the characters in The Wizard of Oz. That evening that Avery was with us, we streamed the movie with Judy Garland and we watched it together again. Now, I'm sure most of you remember the story of The Wizard of Oz. Well, that's the title of the movie. The book was entitled The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And it, too, was an allegory, just like this parable in Matthew this morning. Frank Baum wrote the book in 1900. And like the parable in our text today, 
these allegories are meant to allow and even force us to see a different reality. The Wizard of Oz is a wonderful, enjoyable story with a great deal of wisdom, but if one understands the symbolism, it's a historically rooted, howling political satire on the American scene. The work was written about the time of the collapse of the populist party that was based on an alliance of Midwestern farmers and industrial workers who together challenged bankers and economic interests and also wanted a silver standard to replace the gold standard. So the scarecrow represents the Midwestern farmers and the tin man, the industrial workers, and the cowardly lion who can roar but little else represents reformers like William Jennings Bryan, the orator who failed in his presidential campaign. And Dorothy represents the common person. They're all traveling along the yellow brick road, the gold standard, to Oz, which is the abbreviation for ounce, to seek favors from the wizard, the president, who's just a common man who has power by deception. It's really a biting political satire on life at the turn of the 20th century. But, as you know, it has a life well beyond the context of its origination. Even Avery likes it. The parable today is also a biting satire on life at the time of Christ and the ways in which the religious officials of the day misunderstood their role and mistreated the representatives sent from God to correct their misappropriation of what belongs to God. So what can we learn from this parable today? Well, rejection, rejection. How many of us have experienced some form of rejection? Might have been in school as a child in the lunchroom. Some heartbreaking rejection by someone you were dating and in love with. It might have been from an employer for a job you really wanted or a promotion that you thought you deserved. Actor Laurence Olivier once spoke about the pain of rejection. He said, you know, I've always thought that the initial trouble between me and my father was that he couldn't see the slightest purpose in my existence. You know, I bet somebody watching right now can relate to that, to that feeling. Matthew tells us of a time when Jesus felt rejected. And he quoted Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus applied that to himself. People began to dismiss his preaching. They weren't being fed by his sermons. They lost interest in his message. They labeled him a blasphemer. And you know, I know some of us can identify with that rejection that Jesus felt. Someone you love may have rejected you or you felt rejected at work or school. Some of us even bear scars that no one else can see. Scars of disappointment and pain. And then surprisingly on another level, people who have happy marriages and good families still feel rejected. 
And they don't even know why they feel that way. After all, no one really that they love has turned their backs on them. But still there are these unspoken feelings of rejection that haunt them. And it seems to go way back. It appears that the way we cope with rejection, either as young people or older adults, is determined by whether we already feel rejected or accepted. I know young people who can get left out of a group and it barely phases them. Why? Because they already feel loved and accepted within themselves. They aren't dependent on getting affirmed by their peers. But at the same time, I know adults who go all to pieces when they feel rejected. A spouse leaves, and the ordeal can become so crushing that they never move beyond the pain, feeling left behind. Others are able to pick up the pieces and get on with their lives. What's the difference? Well, usually the latter group have an inner sense of acceptance and they don't depend upon a particular relationship to define their worth. They feel love. They feel worthy of love. And I think this sense of acceptance happens to us in the very first years of our lives. Some of us had parents who knew how to love without restraint and that instilled a sense of security and acceptance. Others of us had well-meaning parents who did not or could not give unrestrained love, maybe because they never experienced such love themselves. So many of us just seem to go through life looking for the acceptance we never received as children. And that's a crippling experience. Towards the end of his life, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he began telling stories. Have you ever listened to Garrison Keillor? His show on the radio, A Prairie Home Companion, was a big hit for over 40 years. We used to listen to it on Saturday afternoons when we lived in Minnesota. And when he would say the words, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, my ears would just kind of perk up and I'd listen intently. Describing the loves of ordinary people. People I've never met. He had a way of making me care about them. And part of it was his voice. He had this way of speaking to my ear. When he told of the kind of petty quarrels and fears, it made me recognize my own. And when he spoke of yearning for larger lives, my own longing flared up for my life. He's telling a story, but he was telling my story at the same time. He didn't use theological words, but the holiness of common everyday life on earth became real and tangible when he told those stories. Jesus talked a lot like that. When he told stories, as people listened, it felt as if they were on stage and he was telling their stories, and it had a way of highlighting the holiness of life on earth. 
So Jesus tells this story. And the people listening knew at once it was not a new story. It's found in Isaiah the prophet. And they knew Isaiah's song probably by heart. The picture of a wonderful vineyard on a fertile hill that belongs to God. God dug it. God cleared it of stones. God planted it with the choicest vines. And did they remember the rest of the tune? God looked for grapes, but he got wild grapes instead. And did they remember God's plaintive cry in Isaiah's song? You see, usually stories about vineyards in the Bible have to do with accountability. They talk about a day of reckoning. Now in this story, we identify initially with the renters. The landlord's probably privileged, probably wealthy, living somewhere in leisure and luxury. And the renters are good, simple, hardworking people like you and me. Many of us like to be on the side of the little guy because that's how we tend to think of ourselves. But that sets us up for the very first jolt of this story. When the owner's servant appears asking for rent, the renters beat him up badly and they send him packing. The renters break the contract and by abusing the servant, they abuse the master. So what does the master do? What's this owner going to do? Not only is his income, but now his honor are at stake. And if he allows this to go unchallenged, who else is going to pay rent in Galilee? What will he do? So he sends another servant, and they beat him up. And at this point, the owner is looking like a fool. The first rejection ought to have called for some kind of maintenance of his honor. But he sends a second servant, and they've beaten him up too. So what does this powerful owner do next? He sends his son to them. Harold, Harold, you go down to the vineyard and see if you can get along any better than those first two servants. I mean, what kind of owner is this? It makes you wonder. The renters say, look, his heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance of the vineyard will be ours. And they killed him. And now the owner has no rent, no honor, no servants, and now no son. And I, I'm not really surprised by this act of violence of the tenants. I've come to expect it of them, but they cared so little for the owner as to beat his servants. Why wouldn't they beat his son? What is surprising is the tenant's assumption that by killing the son, they'd get the vineyard. I mean, why would they believe that? What claim do they have to that property? What would make them think that by their own violent strategy, they could take the vineyard? You know, wow, this is starting to sound pretty familiar, isn't it? Maybe this story isn't as old as we first thought. At any rate, this owner, now that he has no rent, no honor, no servants, no son, and now no vineyard, 
the cruel and the shameless have taken over. As I said at the first, I sided with the renters against the owner, but that was before I knew what sort of people they really were. And toward the end, after the beating of the servants and the death of his own son, I get disgusted with this owner and frustrated by his apparent inability to look after his own affairs. He's only got himself to blame. He should have put his foot down earlier. The owner should have stood up for himself and acted like an owner, but he didn't. He sent one servant after another to get stoned and beaten and rejected. Then he sent his son to get not only stoned and beaten and rejected, but killed. What kind of story is this? It's a tragedy. With servants rejected, the son dead, the vineyard's ownership in doubt, the owner's response in question. And now there are a bunch of tenants running wild in their stupidity and violence. And I get to thinking that life in this world hasn't really changed too much since the time of Isaiah and Jesus. Do any of us have a hard time being tenants? Do any of us still want to be owners? You see, the miracle seems to me that God keeps at it, never gives up trying to reach me and touch me and change me. God's own son came into the vineyard, gathering around himself the most unlikely people. And more often than not, they were people rejected by others and by the larger society around them. They were looked down on, even as people looked down on Jesus. And the owner of the vineyard looks weak and powerless. The tenants act like thieves and murderers. The whole story ends with the fate of the vineyard unresolved. Who will inherit The owner is still alive, but so too are the violent tenants. What will be the end of the story? The killings continue. And servants are still sent out to contest the inheritance of the violent and the unjust. We don't know what the final fate will be. But we do know this. And we know this according to the story and according to our own experience. The owner, the master, is unwilling to let the vineyard go. Great suffering has always been involved in the way that this owner does business. And in the final act of killing the son, we know the high cost of doing business in this vineyard. We know the master is willing to pay that price. Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. There's a cost 
to our, our relationship with God. And it's a high cost of doing business with us. For a holy and a loving God to get close to people like you and me, there's a price to be paid. Does sacrifice have any meaning today? I mean, sometimes I think of the sacrifices that parents make for their children. Outside the family, the work that parents do on behalf of their children looks a lot like a burden, a cost, a sacrifice. But from the parent's point of view, it's more like a gift. So it might be better to speak of parents' sacrifices in terms of a gift. I mean, a parent is going to do something about unruly children. Love and pain just go together. Jesus said, this was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. The giving of his son, this is God's doing. And there's hope for all of us who carry around feelings of rejection and inadequacy and inferiority because the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. And in God's giving his son is the unrestrained gift and love of God. And I find that unrestrained gift and love when I lay myself, my doubts, my fears, my rejection on the altar of God and I ask for healing of my wounded life. Accountability. God desires the vineyard to produce the fruits of the kingdom of heaven. Fruits like love and joy and peace and Patience, kindness, fidelity, tolerance, self-control. I'm accountable for my little patch of this vineyard, my part of this garden. How aligned am I to the work that God has given me to do, given you to do? Whether it's preaching like I am now or parenting or accounting, whether it's caring for the poor or leading a committee or helping children grow in faith or protesting some violence loose in society. How am I doing with what God has given me? Alexis de Tocqueville, a French historian and sociologist who traveled the United States in 1830, seeking the reasons for the great success of the new nation, And he wrote about his observations in a book entitled Democracy in America. He writes, I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning, I sought for it in her democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution. But not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. 
Friends, this is World Communion Sunday. We get to join with people from all over the world in this banquet, thrown in honor of Jesus the Christ, the Son, whose sacrifice is really the greatest gift ever given. And people like you and me are discovering their wounded lives are being healed by the God who will not give up on this vineyard. And so we take from the creation this bread and this cup and giving thanks to the owner, we join in our own healing and the healing of the entire world. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.